And we, uh, it's great to be with you again. Today we'll be in Philemon. Philemon, so if you would uh, please turn there in your Bible, right before Hebrews, right after Titus. It's a short one. Help your neighbor find it. Uh, as you turn there, as a short disclaimer. I'm sure at, at some point in this sermon, I will say Philemon instead of Philemon. <laughs> the reason for that is twofold. One, long vowels are harder to say than short vowels. Two, uh, I've known two gentlemen, both from Africa, actually, whose name was Philemon. So I'll be recalling that. But I'll try Philemon. Uh, This is the shortest, perhaps the most personal of all of Paul's letters. The marvelous thing is because Paul was an apostle, as he wrote this very short, very personal, very specific letter to his friend Philemon, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit such that the words he penned were actually the very words of God. And these words of God, penned originally for Philemon in the first century, are also, because of the Holy Spirit's superintendence, for all of God's people throughout all generations. And Philemon is a marvelous word from God. I pray that it becomes precious to you in this hour together, as it has become to me. So here's my goal for this morning. It's a big one. I hope, I pray that God will use the letter to Philemon to change your life by opening your eyes to see the glories, and I mean that, the weight, the significance, the glories of how Christians relate to one another according to God's design and empowered by his grace. Now, um, some of you who have Uh, been with us regularly, you hear that, you might think, huh, it seems that we've been hearing this a lot lately. We did an eight-week series on true community. Damon preached last week about how to live in community given our sinfulness. Uh, In many ways, this message will complement what was taught in those messages. Uh, I did not, however, prepare this sermon with the goal of continuing to beat that same drum of our relation to one another. I simply aimed to understand Philemon and to tell you what it means, and providentially, this is where God has us, and it's wonderful. Uh, So let's turn our attention now to Paul's own introduction in the letter, uh, which will provide an opportunity for us to orient ourselves to its message. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Now, this is from Paul, who is in prison during this time because of his opposition to gospel ministry. Timothy is with him, uh, his his disciple and and fellow laborer in the gospel. This is to Philemon. So Philemon is beloved to Paul, and it says he is a fellow worker. So he works with Paul in Paul's endeavors to make disciples of Jesus and then to gather those disciples into local churches. In fact, Philemon, as we'll find out in verse 2, the church in town meets in his house. He has a large household. Consequently, he lives in the first century. He has many servants. Uh, One such servant, 
provides the occasion for this letter. Uh, I'll tell you on the front end what this letter generally is about. Paul is writing to his beloved friend concerning a man named Onesimus. Onesimus used to be one of Philemon's slaves, and he ran away. And it's likely, given what we learn in the rest of the letter, that he stole from him on the way out, too. High-handed sin. Uh, One commentator offers this helpful background information. While we do not know the precise reasons for Onesimus' flight, we do know that in the Roman world of Paul's day, slaves did often run away. They joined groups of robbers and brigands, attempted to disappear in the subcultures of large cities, tried to flee abroad where they might be absorbed into the workforce, or sought asylum in a pagan temple. Onesimus ended up choosing none of these methods of escape. Instead, he ended up with the imprisoned apostle. Paul took an interest in him, and Onesimus was subsequently converted to the Christian faith. So Onesimus uh, runs away, an illegal act of rebellion, and he ends up meeting Paul in prison. Heard the gospel, he's converted, and Paul, uh, what are the chances of this, actually knows Onesimus' master. He knows what he did wasn't right. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, and he puts this letter that we're about to read in his hand to give to Philemon. And this letter is an appeal from Paul to Philemon to receive Onesimus, who's now a Christian, in a certain way. Uh, Verse 2 continues the short introduction. Look at it with me. And Apphia, our sister, probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, so another co-worker of Paul in the ministry, perhaps was also a member of Philemon's household, and the church in your house, which we made reference to earlier. So uh, although the contents of this letter, as we see, are clearly written uh, to and for Philemon personally, it's also true that all of those associated with Philemon's household are going to be affected by how this former slave is received back into the household. And now, how this former slave is going to be received back into the church that meets in his household. In verse 3, Paul closes the introduction the same way he does all of his letters. Verse 3, he wrote, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pronouncing uh, over Philemon uh, a prayer wish. Like when uh, someone comes up at the end here and does a benediction, speaks a good word prayerfully over someone. He says, Grace to you. That is, may God give you grace to be able to do what I'm about to appeal to you to do. And peace to you. May he give you peace, uh, relational harmony with God, with others, even uh, with God's world. And such peace would be the sure result of taking the course of action proposed by Paul in this letter. The body of the letter that follows, follows a very simple outline. Here it is. First, a prayer, and then a plea. Verses 4 through 7, a prayer is made for Philemon. Verses 8 through 22, a plea is made to Philemon. Let's look at this prayer together. It begins in verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Verse 5 is going to explain why thinking about Philemon 
triggers in Paul this constant offering of thanksgiving to God. Verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So uh, he says, I hear of your love and faith. And then the second part of the verse shows what the objects of this love and faith respectively are. Your love, uh, which you have for all the saints, your faith, which is in the Lord Jesus. And uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, when he says you love is for all the saints, saints refers to all Christians, not just some super spiritual subset of them. So, uh, yes, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a saint, but so is Dana Delosier, okay? All true Christians are saints. Now, this is instructive for us. Almost all of Paul's letters begin this way. He gives a thanksgiving for, uh, for the people he's writing to, and he thanks God usually for two things, their faith in Jesus, their love for Christians. How essential is love of the brethren? Apparently, in Paul's mind, right up there at the top with faith in Jesus itself. This shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Jesus said, how will people know that we're his disciples when we love not just all people generally, when we love Christians specifically? And Paul thanks God that these things are true in Philemon's life. Faith in Jesus will manifest itself in love toward the saints. And Paul hears this truth is manifesting itself in Philemon's life. And remembering this produces thanksgiving to the God who created it in Philemon's heart. In the next verse, uh, Paul transitions from thanksgiving to petition. But his petition develops this same idea further. That faith in Christ affects how Christians relate to one another. Look at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing or fellowship of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, uh, verse 6, in some ways, is the most important verse in the whole letter. It explains the theological underpinnings of the course of action Paul is going to uh, appeal to Philemon to take. So because that's true, we need to take a long, hard look at this verse. Now, I'll run the risk of belaboring its point to a fault because it's that important. So, so Paul is praying to the Lord to do something for Philemon, and this will provide the basis of his appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus in a certain way. This petition concerns the sharing of your faith or the fellowship or, or partnership of your faith. And the word translated sharing in the ESV here that I'm preaching from is the Greek word koinonia. Perhaps you've heard it before. Uh, Koinonia is the noun form to refresh you or to introduce you. It's the noun form of an adjective which means common. So that which is common. Uh, You could translate it as common bond, common life, community, communion, hence the NAS fellowship. So, so it can refer um, broadly to just a common life people have together, or it can refer more specifically 
to part of that common experience. Like we have common possessions, hence you can translate it sharing. Or we have a common objective, hence you could translate it like partnership, a business partnership or partnership in ministry. But here Paul uses the word broadly to speak of the common life Christians share with each other. Christians' union with one another in Christ. So actually the word sharing, uh, it's not a bad translation in and of itself, but in the phrase sharing of your faith, it's kind of unfortunate. Because when I say sharing your faith, you think evangelism. This is not about evangelism. Uh, If you've used it that way in the past, don't feel bad. So have I. Just just stop. (laughs) So, it's speaking of this common life that we share together, which comes from our faith, is produced by our faith, is an outgrowth of believing in Jesus. We are made to have a common life. Similarly, uh, the, the King James says the communication of your faith. But better, probably in contemporary English, would be the, the communion of your faith. Uh, so if we take that short phrase, here's what it's saying. When we trust in Christ, God unites us to Christ. When we are united to Christ, we are therefore united to everyone else who is united to Christ. Objectively. So this is the ground of our koinonia, our common life with one another. So what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine because, more fundamentally, I am yours and you are mine because we are Christ's. And this objective spiritual reality in which Philemon participates because of his faith in Jesus is what Paul is praying about. Uh, What exactly is Paul asking God to do with respect to this already accomplished spiritual reality, Philemon's union to other believers in Christ? Look at the verse again. That it might become effective. Effective. Uh, This word is used two other times in the Bible. One, at the end of Corinthians, Paul says to them, I want to come to you in Corinth But I have to stay in Ephesus because God has opened a door for me. A great and, here it is, an effective door. So there's an opportunity for all kinds of activity in ministry, for productive work. The other time is Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and, this word, active. So Paul is praying that Philemon's common life with other believers in Christ will become active or effective in the sense that it accomplishes or produces activity that it would have an effect on a certain situation. Namely, the fact that Onesimus is standing on his doorstep. So in some ways, I think this is really beautiful, uh, this prayer is, is like the logic of Romans 6. In Romans 6, Paul says, because you are united to Christ, and that because that's true, you should put away sin and live righteously, alive to God and dead to sin. So here... Because you were united to one another, that should affect the live and treat each other. Here Paul prays generally for what he is about to ask Philemon to do specifically. How will this communion Philemon has become effective? Look at the middle of verse 6. In the knowledge of every good thing which is in us. 
So it will happen through growing in both understanding and experience of, of the blessings we have in Christ. And why is Paul praying this ultimately? Look at the end of verse 6. For the sake of Christ. That Jesus would be honored through his body relating to one another in ways that reflect him. Okay. So we've been um, squatting over this verse for some time now. Let's summarize it, and then we'll move on. It says, I pray concerning the unity or communion or common life you have with other believers because of your faith, that this uh, theological reality would activate, that it would have an effect on the way you live, and that this would happen by means of you growing in experiential knowledge of, of this blessing that we have in Christ, and that this would happen for the glory of Christ and the Christ-likeness of his people. And Paul feels like he's standing on pretty good footing to ask God to do this for Philemon because Paul knows that Philemon has demonstrated this kind of effective community in the past. Look at verse 7 with me. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul says, in essence, how wonderful. You've been loving and serving other Christians already. Now, uh, did you note this, that he said, it is joy and comfort to me when you serve other brothers. There's a sign of Christian maturity. There's a sign of understanding our oneness with each other. Can you say this with Paul? Uh, Not, it's my joy and comfort to see you pursue my joy and comfort. Rather, and think about these words, joy, comfort. It is my joy, it is my comfort to see you pursue the good of another Christ follower. And the amazing thing is, uh, some of these Christians, Paul has most, most certainly never even met. And yet... Yet, still, their spiritual refreshment is his comfort and joy. Why? How? Because though he does not know them, he knows that they are one with him in Christ. And how specifically has Philemon's love been manifest? Look at the second half of verse 9 again. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Uh, Their hearts, literally this, this word is... Uh, their bowels. It, it's an, in the original language, onomatopoetic. It sounds like uh, what it is. It's splunkna, okay? The splunkna of the saints have been refreshed through you. Uh, the, the deepest parts, the core of, of who someone is. So through Philemon's ministry in his home, in the church that meets there, Philemon has given deep emotional, spiritual rejuvenation probably also physical rejuvenation through hospitality to other Christians. Perhaps you could say it this way. He has given rest to their souls. Think about that word, uh, to refresh, to make fresh again. You should aim for this with each other. How can I renew, make new again, make fresh again? How can I renew my brother's spirits How can I rejuvenate his resolve to live a life of faithfulness? How can I bring him physical, emotional, spiritual rest and refreshment? 
recreation in, in the true sense of recreating someone. And because this had been true in Philemon's life, after asking God to help Philemon, Paul is about to appeal to Philemon to do it again. In verse 8, he begins his appeal. Here it is. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Now, what would give uh, Paul the special right to command Philemon to do anything? Uh, It would be totally inappropriate for me to say, I command you in the name of Christ to clean up the sanctuary after church. I don't have that kind of authority. What makes Paul such a bold authority in Christ? Uh, If you remember, Paul was set apart by the will of God to be an apostle. And the apostles were this small set of, of men chosen by Jesus to represent him. And they were sent out to give the church an authoritative foundational witness to Jesus and then provide a body of truth that would be the foundation that the church would be built from to deliver the faith once for all to the saints. Apostles were chosen by Jesus. They spoke Jesus' words to Jesus' people with the authority of Jesus himself. Paul knew he was an apostle, and it was not wrong for Paul to exercise this kind of authority. In fact, he did. In 1 Corinthians, he said that you need to acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Similar statement uh, to what's happening in Philemon, he laid aside that right and said, I didn't do a particular thing, quote, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So although he has this authority, apostolic authority, he's not going to use it to issue a command to Philemon. What will he do instead? Look at verse 9. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So not as an apostle do I ask, not as one who merits respect and deserves obedience will I command. Rather, I will appeal to you. In what manner? From what posture? As an older man. As a prisoner. Like those who frequently are seen as lowly, not possessing authority. Prisoner especially, garnering shame in the world's eyes. So I, Paul, appeal to you as a prisoner, a criminal in the world's eyes for my association with Christ. I appeal to you for a criminal in the world's eyes. But he, a criminal, not because of his association with Christ, he, a criminal, because of his sin. But because of his association with Christ, I will ask you not to receive him as a criminal. Why is he appealing in this manner? He tells us in verse 9, for love's sake. This is beautiful, isn't it? Um, Paul here is modeling what he calls Philemon to do. So Paul says, because of the love I have for you, Philemon, I do not prefer to ask you as an apostle with authority over you, though I could act out of that, it wouldn't be wrong. I rather prefer to take posture of humility as one beneath you, as it were. And likewise, I call on you, Philemon, to lay aside the posture of authority over Onesimus you have as his master, 
though you could do that. It wouldn't be wrong necessarily for you to do so. And rather prefer to relate to him as a brother out of love for him. And even, as we'll see later, relate to him as his servant. The way Christians are called to love and serve one another is stunning. It's beautiful. It's the example we have from Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of my favorite stories from the Gospels, um, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus calls them and says, you know that those who are considered rulers, positions of authority, of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why is it like that in the kingdom? This is why. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For love's sake and as an example to imitate, Paul appeals to Philemon as an old prisoner. Now, I need to say this. We shouldn't think it's contrary to love for some of us to exercise authority over others of us, freeing ways and contexts according to the roles God has placed us in. But there is something more fundamental about our relationship with one another, something that does not overturn the exercise of proper authority, but something that does supersede it. And that is for love's sake, that we humble ourselves, relate to each other as brother and servant. It's interesting to note um, in Colossians, and this actually was also a letter that Paul put in Philemon's hand. At the end of Colossians, uh, we know that that letter was delivered by Onesimus and one of another of Paul's associates, uh, Tychicus. So likely, uh, Onesimus comes from prison. He's carrying both this letter to Philemon and the letter to the church in Colossae. And in that letter that Onesimus is carrying, Colossians 3, it says, In Christ there is no slave and free. And yet, just 10 verses later, it says, Servants, obey in everything your masters. And then later, Masters, Treat your servants justly and fairly. So, again, our union in Christ does not eliminate other distinctions among us, even those involving authority and submission, but it does transcend them. It provides an identity more fundamental. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So I appeal to you, saints, Calvary Bible, for love's sake, for love's sake, give yourself to one another. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Then for love's sake, posture 
the humble posture of a servant with one another. So verses 9 and 10, Paul says how he will appeal. Verses 10 and following, he tells us for whom he will appeal. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. This is the first time that Paul actually drops Onesimus' name in the letter. He doesn't let the cat out of the bag until right here. And in the original language, it's actually even more dramatic because he sandbags Onesimus' name till right at the very end. More literally, it reads, I appeal to you concerning my child, whom I fathered in prison, Onesimus. Uh, This must have been such a dramatic moment. Imagine this scene, uh, the swirl of thoughts and emotions Philemon must have been experiencing. Shocked to see Onesimus back at his doorstep. Probably angry, remembering afresh how he wronged him. Confused as to why Onesimus is with Tychicus, Paul's other associate. Ultra confused that Onesimus has anything to do with a letter from Paul. Heart beating hard, mind racing fast. He opens the letter, reads carefully but quickly to see what this is all about. From Paul to Philemon. Hello, grace to you. I thank God for you. I pray God would help you love the saints. I rejoice you've done so in the past. I'm about to ask you something appealing to love. What is it? I appeal to you concerning my child, okay, whom I fathered in prison, okay. And then the hammer drops. It's none other than Onesimus himself. I would have loved uh, to have seen the bewilderment, perhaps, on his face. Now, uh, what does it mean that Onesimus became Paul's child in prison? Uh, This kind of language is used all through the New Testament, and Paul uses this language a lot about his own ministry. People who are converted, when he preaches the gospel to them, he refers to as his children. And remember, this was Paul's ministry, this gospel ministry, while he was incarcerated. How encouraging is that? God was using Paul despite the Roman government's imprisoning him. You can, bear, you can minister, you can bear fruit that lasts into eternity in the face of anything. Now, you shouldn't think, if only my circumstances would change, if only this trial would lift, then I could serve God, then I could engage in ministry. That's not true. Paul's circumstantial confinement did not confine God's ability to use him. Also, uh, consider, we've, we've considered it lightly already, but consider it with more depth now, how God exercises his providence for the good of his people. Somehow, Onesimus's path of rebellion actually led him to the place where the apostle Paul was in prison. Why, why was Onesimus in that place in the first place? Because of his sin. Because of his insurrection and theft against his master. Onesimus left Philemon pursuing sin, and he wound up in Rome finding salvation. God made sure this journey of iniquity, as it were, dead-ended in the prison cell of Christ's apostle to the Gentiles the only person on the planet, by the way, who has designated that. Who also, again, as God would have it, also happened to be a close friend of Philemon. It's an incredible story. 
But in one sense, isn't this the testimony of all of us? We weren't saved because we started to pursue God. We didn't set out on a journey to find him and then found him as a result. God saved us while we were pursuing sin. While I was chasing sin, God was drawing me to himself. Mysteriously, wonderfully. Man, if that sinks in, what can you do in response but worship? What a good God. Paul gives more explanation about how God changed Onesimus in verse 11. It says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Onesimus not only became a Christian under Paul's ministry, he also became an effective co-laborer with Paul in the ministry. Um, a servant who runs away is indeed a useless servant. But after God transformed him in Christ... He became a worthy servant, even in the most important service there is, the ministry of the gospel, which we're all called to partake of at some level. But despite Onesimus' positive contributions to Paul's ministry, Paul didn't keep him around. Look at verse 12. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Wow, what an intimate identification with Onesimus. In verse 10, he is my child, In verse 12, even closer, he is my very heart. The same word used in verse 7, you have have refreshed the hearts of the saints in the past. My welfare is all bound up in his welfare. Uh, This astonishing closeness, Paul feels toward Onesimus, is based on his knowledge and his experience of the common life Christians share. More to come on that later. Uh, Verse 13 and 14, Paul tells us why he sent Onesimus back to Philemon. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. This is amazing too. He says, I wanted to keep him. Why? Even for your sake, Philemon that he might serve me on your behalf as your representative, even in your stead, as if Onesimus' service to me would count as your own participation in my ministry. So, So Paul is saying, I know, Philemon, you would want to be with me in the ministry yourself if you could, but the gospel labors of Onesimus could be considered as you joining me in the ministry. Notice this close identification, not just between Paul and Onesimus, but now between Onesimus and Philemon. As if Onesimus could stand in for Philemon in service to Paul, such that it could count as Philemon's service in the ministry with Paul, because the two are one in the Lord. So this interchangeability of Philemon and Onesimus highlights their union with each other and their fundamental equality. With each other. So, so Paul says, although I wanted to keep him, I sent him to you. Why? I didn't want to keep him without you expressing that this is what you wanted. Verse 14 again, I prefer to do nothing without your consent. 
So Paul submits his desires, even good desires, for further gospel ministry. He submits those desires under the desires of Philemon. Why? Look at the rest of verse 14. In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So that you'll have an opportunity to do what is supremely good. So Paul compares two kinds of good here. There's good done under compulsion and good that comes from someone's own accord. Both are good. The latter is clearly a higher good. Now, this is important to realize. Good that comes from compulsion is still considered good. A higher good is that which comes freely and willingly. And this is the Christian life. God is not concerned merely with what we do, but with why and how we do it. Romans 6 says, You were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart. Uh, So children, if you obey your parents just because they make you, that's good. That's good. Keep doing that. (laughs) Good Good done from compulsion still qualifies as good. But there is a higher good which you should pursue. And that's that which you freely choose to do. So you love and serve and honor them even when you're not commanded to. And that, by the way, probably signals the difference between a child who has godly parents, keeps their children submissive, and a child who is himself godly. This verse, uh, before moving on, I think this verse exemplifies a profound and beautiful truth of God saves men and leads them to good works. So when God works sovereignly in someone's heart, it is not contrary to their own free and willing love of their own accord. Rather, God's sovereign work in a believer's heart causes a believer's free and willing love. After Paul explains who his appeal was about in verse 10 through 14, Paul turns Philemon's attention to God's broader purposes in order to help him to have a proper perspective for considering this. Uh, So why should Philemon even begin to think about doing anything on behalf of this one who has wronged him so grievously? Here's how Paul answers. Look at verse 15. For, so this is why I'm appealing, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So what Onesimus meant for evil, God used for good. God has turned your servant who wronged you and frustrated you into a brother for you whom you will love forever. Um, If you're struggling to get over how a brother in Christ has wronged you, turn your thoughts to consider how God incorporates even the wrongdoing of others we receive into his plan for our good. 
Focus on the good and wise purposes of God instead of the evil and foolish actions of your brother. I think it's also helpful to note the degree of tentativeness Paul adds in these verses. Note verse 15 again. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you. Uh, We should always have a cautious humility as we interpret what God is doing providentially in the world. Isn't it wonderful also here? Paul describes Onesimus using the exact same language he's already affectionately addressed Philemon with. Verse 2, Philemon is beloved. Verse 7, Philemon is brother. But Onesimus enjoys the same affectionate union, beloved brother. So what does our union in Christ with one another mean? Practically, in how we relate to one another? It means love. Paul addresses Philemon as his beloved one, verse 2, who has loved the saints, verse 5 and 7, urging him for the sake of love, verse 9, to receive Onesimus as a beloved brother, verse 16. There is something so indescribably sweet about Christian love. Now, at the end there of that verse, Paul said, he's a beloved brother, especially to me. That is not only uh, is he a fellow believer, but especially to me. That is beyond that. He serves with me in gospel ministry. Then he says, how much more to you, Philemon, is Onesimus a beloved brother? So he's now part of your household, your family in the Lord, and part of your natural household. I think here Paul is acknowledging that there's something especially sweet about when uh, someone from our own household is brought even closer by becoming a brother or sister in the Lord. I'll never forget uh, one time I saw a man baptize his daughter, and he looked at her and he said, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They didn't cease to relate to one another as father-daughter, but there was something more fundamental, something that would, get this, last longer. Beloved sister forever. So God has taken him from you, Philemon. God has made him your brother in Christ. What is Philemon to do? So all of the previous verses have focused on the who and the how of Paul's appeal. Verse 17 begins the what. What exactly does he want Philemon to do? There are only four commands in this letter, and they're all right here at the end. The first is in verse 17. Let's read it together. So if you consider me your partner, that's really significant. Because the word translated partner there is actually a form of the word koinonia. If you consider me your koinonos, if you consider me one with whom you have koinonia, if you consider me one that you're united to in the Lord, have a common life with in Christ, receive him as you would receive me. Of course, receive Onesimus, my beloved brother, my child, my very heart who shares a common life in Christ with me. Receive him just like you would receive me. Receive your runaway servant and serve him like he is the apostle of Christ, one to whom you owe your life 
And the ways in which Paul identifies with Onesimus goes even deeper. Look at verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So Onesimus is so closely identified with Paul in Christ that not only can the good owed to Paul be given to Onesimus, but also the penalties due Onesimus can be charged to Paul. This is a a superlative example of fulfilling the law of Christ. Commentators have noted this, that in many ways, Paul is acting like Christ in his mediation, as it were, between Onesimus and Philemon. Philemon let all his wrongdoing against you be credited to me and let him be received by you like I deserve to be received which is what Jesus has done for us with the Father. So we can be received before the Father the way Jesus deserves to be received. And that Jesus takes on himself the wrongdoing and penalty that should be charged to us for our sin if we are one with Christ by faith. The way that you relate to each other, people should be able to look at that and say, wow, That looks a lot like the gospel. Verse 19, I love verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Uh, It's as if Paul anticipates Philemon thinking, charge his debt to Paul. Who wrote this? He says, I, Paul, wrote this with my own hand, and I'll pay it all. So, among other things, this letter is an IOU from Paul. It's the most beautiful, doctrinally rich IOU in the history of the world. Now, why didn't Paul just ask Philemon to forgive his debt altogether? Why offer to repay instead? Paul tells us why. The second half of that verse. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So, I'm willing to repay it. In order that, I might not have to bring up your debt to me. You do owe me your own self. I'm the one God used uh, to save you in Christ from sin and hell and death. Through my ministry, God has given you life. But just as he said previously, I don't want you to do this because I'm an apostle with authority. Now he says, nor do I want you to do this because you owe me anything. I want you to do this out of love because of the common life you have in Christ. Verse 20 represents uh, the, the capstone of the whole appeal. Look at verse 20. Brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So may I have some benefit. Let it be that I benefit from you now. How? Refresh my heart. Maybe some of you have already connected these dots. In verse 7, Paul said, You have refreshed the hearts of the saints. In verse 12, I am sending Onesimus, who is my heart. So here, Onesimus, is your opportunity to do for me what you have done for others. Refresh my heart. How can this action be considered benefit to Paul? Look at verse 20 again. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
When you receive Onesimus, when he benefits, it's benefit to me in the Lord because of our relation in Christ. When you give rest to him, it's refreshment to my heart in Christ. Do you have this understanding and experience? Do you rejoice in your brother's benefit? Would you spend the benefit you are owed on your brother? Verse 21 gives us a close look into what motivated Paul to write this appeal. And especially what motivated him to appeal in the manner in which he did. Look at 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. I appeal to you from love, asking you to do this freely, because I know you will. Now, how can he say this? Um, Is he just indirectly piling on the pressure? I don't think so. I don't think he's playing some manipulative, psychological game here. He means this. He really is confident Philemon will do this. He really does feel certain Philemon will do all of it and even exceed it. Now, you might be thinking, what more could he do than Paul asked? Well, although he didn't ask specifically, perhaps Paul is confident Philemon won't actually transfer his debt to Paul, but will forgive it altogether. Or, although he didn't ask for this specifically, perhaps he's confident Philemon will send Onesimus back to Paul to join him in further gospel ministry on Philemon's behalf. Or, although he didn't ask for this specifically, perhaps Paul is confident Philemon will emancipate Onesimus once for all. I think this letter shows us how the outworking of gospel truth in people's hearts inevitably, inevitably leads to overturning of the institution of slavery. Maybe all of these things he's confident Philemon will do. What gives Paul this confidence? Philemon loves the saints because he is one with them, because he trusts in Christ. Asking a true Christian to love another true Christian should be like asking my son if he wants a piece of candy. Of course he does. Of course he does. That's who he is. And that's who you are if you're a Christian. To love the body of Christ, to serve the body of Christ, comes naturally to those who are supernaturally joined together in him. Of course, I don't want to be uh, Pollyanna-ish about this. We don't always live up to this ideal. And that's why Paul prays that Philemon's communion, their believers, will become effective. Help me to treat my brother in a way that corresponds to what is true about our relationship. As if Paul's request wasn't already exciting enough, he adds to it in verse 22. At the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Uh, So by the way, I know that you're praying for me to be delivered from prison, and it's my expectant hope that God will answer those prayers, and I'll come to you because I desire to be with you, and I know how you feel about me, that you would consider my return a gracious gift of God to you. That could come across uh, kind of arrogant, 
I'm God's gift to you. (laughs) Paul knows Philemon loves the saints. The conclusion continues uh, to sound the notes of Christian camaraderie. Look at verse 23. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. Verse 24. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So the letter opens and closes with a prayer for grace. May grace be to you because you will need God's grace to love and serve like this. Here's good news for you. If you are in Christ, you have God's grace available to you to love and serve like this. This is the glory of our relation in Christ. Your burdens are my burdens in the Lord. Your reception is my reception in the Lord. Your rest is my refreshment in the Lord. Your refreshment in the Lord is my comfort and joy. I rejoice in your service and reward as if it is my own service and reward. Your deliverance and presence is God's gracious gift to me. Uh, I'll never forget um, when I got married... That's a good thing not to forget, right? But at our, at our rehearsal dinner, um, we were just with brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and brothers and sisters in the flesh. And uh, at, after the dinner, people were just standing up from our, from our church and basically saying variations of the same theme. We love you guys. We love you guys. Um, and my dad, who's not a believer, came up to me after, and he was, he was almost crying. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't get it out, and later I found out um, he was just overcome at, at what he called the outpouring of emotion that was happening in the room. Um, he just saw Christians loving each other. Have you experienced this? If not, don't you want to? Here's how you can. Naturally, you're not drawn to other people, and other people are not drawn to you. Okay? Sorry to burst your balloon there. Because you and others are alienated from God, and therefore alienated from others who bear the image of God because of your sin. You're a sinner. You live for yourself instead of seeking the glory of God and the good of others. You don't love God and others, you love yourself. And God will punish sin in this selfishness. But God, who is your creator and your judge, in love of his own accord, sent his son Jesus to identify with you and to die for your sin, to bear it on the cross and to take it away. And then Jesus rose from the dead, showing that the penalty you deserve for your sin and the power that your sin has over you had been completely done away with in him. And if you'll just repent, turn away from your sin, and put all your hope in Jesus, and trust in him and what he has done for you in his death and resurrection, God will unite you to Christ, such that the punishment you deserve for your sin will have been dealt with on the cross. The punishment you deserve for your loveless self-seeking 
credited to him and done away with. And his perfectly obedient, perfectly loving, unfathomably servant-hearted, obedient life is credited to you so that God receives you as his child. So you become a son of God because of your association with the eternal son of God, Jesus. Even better, then in Christ, God will send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you who will change you and make you obedient from the heart, make you want to live for God of your own accord and want to live for others of your own accord. Your faith in Christ will result in love for all his people. And if you have experienced this this kind of um, intra-Christian love already, don't you long to experience it more? And pray, like Paul, that your common life with other believers might become effective. I pray that for you, that the reality of your union with each other in Christ will produce and accomplish many good works of love among you. Let's pray that together now. God, I pray that the fellowship of our faith might become effective in the knowledge of every good thing which is ours. I pray that this would happen for the sake of Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.